Welcome to another episode of the Augmented Podcast. Augmented reveals the stories behind the new era of industrial operations, where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. Technology is changing rapidly. What's next in the digital factory? Who's leading the change? What are the key skills to learn? And how to stay up to date on manufacturing and industry 4.0. In episode 44 of the podcast, the topic is no code for IoT in the cloud. Our guest is Rob Rastovich, CTO of ThingLogix. In this conversation, we talk about what the Internet of Things means for industrial business models. We discuss the impact of connected devices and the subscription-based economy on industries as distant from the initial IT waves as agriculture. Augmented is a podcast for industrial leaders, process engineers, and shop floor operators, hosted by Futurist Trun Arne Unheim, presented by Tulip, the frontline operations platform, and associated with MFG Works, the industrial upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast. Rob, how are you today? Very well indeed, John. How are you doing? You know, uh, every day is a good day for podcasts, and that's what matters. You know, rain or shine. It was raining for me this morning. I had a run. It was uh, a, a bit wet, but uh, other than that. Well, it's supposed to be 97 here in, in central Oregon, so we could use the rain. We're in a drought. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, that is true. So you're out there in central Oregon uh, feeding cattle. How, how did you end up there? Uh, born and raised. Um, I'm actually a third generation cattle rancher. Uh, my grandfather actually homesteaded the ranch in 1919. We've been here 102 years now. So almost, I don't know how not to raise cows. <laughs> so I started in technology 30 years ago, but had been doing cows for longer than that. So that's, uh, that's funny. So, uh, but then eventually you did go to university of Portland and you were in communications, uh, or you got a degree in communications, but then uh, most of your career, apart from raising cows has been in uh, I guess e-commerce eventually is that yeah is that right? yeah IT so I, yeah I actually went to school for to go into marketing and so uh, uh, after graduation I actually started a, a marketing company um, a small advertising agency um, down in uh, Ventura California and uh, the internet you know came around and we saw the internet as a a new way, a new product to sell to people, you know, just like, Oh, well, you got to have a website. We didn't know, we didn't know, uh, we didn't know anything about what we were doing, but we figured, Hey, uh, it gives us another product in our bag to go sell our customers. And so we started, I started building web pages and started building e-commerce. And then I got the programmers bug and, you know, I call it the crack cocaine. Once you start, you know, doing a little code, then you can never get enough of it. And ended up getting my master's in CIS and um, been doing code ever since. So, yeah, because that's sort of uh, that that's sort of what you're up to now, right? Uh, to be more of an architect, and and that's kind of what what gets you to to speak about you know the future of IoT. You you've been in the architect role in a, in a bunch of different uh, ways. And, and, and now are you spending your time building products or more uh, kind of advising on, on, on and sort of shepherding them along? Uh, so I'm still building, you know, I still, you know, I still got to code a little bit just to get my fix every now and then. Uh, but typically yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on the architectural side, you know, having, you know, went through the, 
the dot com boom back in the late nineties, early two thousands and um and then kind of the cloud boom, you know, there in the mid two thousands where everything was moving to the cloud and um then we started in IoT back in uh in twenty twelve, um twenty eleven, twenty twelve, uh doing you know, trying to find kind of the next big wave that's going to come. And we always thought it was, you know, IOT was going to be the next big thing. And we uh, started a company out in Denver called um, Telemetry with a bunch of guys that were, we were a bunch of um, Salesforce consultants that decided, well, we, we want to try this. We didn't call it IOT back then. We called it M to M, machine to machine. And so we, um, started, you know, playing around with, you know, the idea of trying to ingest, ingest, you know, billions and billions of simultaneous connections, and you know how that architecture looks. Um, so ultimately, we we ended up selling that company to Amazon, and it is today what is the uh, service called AWS IoT. It's the IoT service on the uh, microservices offering. So. And then since then, it's we're doing professional services around that around that technology. Hmm. So uh, I mean, a lot of people are familiar with the acronym IoT. Uh, many more of us are now kind of implementing technologies that have become called IoT. And you mentioned, you know, machine to machine was an earlier name. I mean, I remember machine to machine, and 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 then IoT more like a theoretical construct, even just twenty years ago. What what happened? Uh, you know, to the early effervescence of of that technology, because it took a while to mature, and you know, to your yeah. point, turn it into actual e-commerce or, yeah. or other products. Yeah, we always, you know, and it's one of those things about when you when you try and get on the cutting edge, called the bleeding edge, right? Um, you know, a lot of times you're solving problems, you're solving a problem people don't even know they have yet. And that was one of, you know, one of our challenges is, okay, yeah, that's really cool. We can, we can connect millions and millions of dishwashers, but why do you want to connect your dishwasher? What's the value of doing that? Just because you can do a thing doesn't necessarily mean you should do a thing. Right? Yeah. And I, I remember it from that side because I was doing some research in, on telcos really long time ago, like in 19, you know, 98. That, that sort of time frame and, and a little onwards. And, and back then there was, there were these discussions and, you know, at a research state stage, these, these technologies sort of did exist, but I, I think people had a really hard time figuring out what is all this going to be used for. Yeah. What, what was that journey as, as things sort of started to crystallize? What was it in your mind that locked in the use cases, and what are what were the the successful early use cases that that really cemented this as a as what it is today? I guess you know, and a really thriving technology that people really want to rally behind. And 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 there are some real things that we will talk about that it actually does. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, in fact, one of our very first customers at Telemetry was really around the use case around track and trace tracking and tracing, you know, shipments, um, shipments of products. So we had, uh, I remember we had a sensor that went in, into a, a box and it measured, it measured light and movement and had GPS. And so they were putting them in, uh, Rolex shipments to make, you know, cause in, when these watches were shipping, you know, people would kind of pry open the case, stick their hand in and grab the, 
you know, grab a watch out when it's in transit or whatnot. Um, <clears throat> so being able to measure if a box has been open and, and track and trace around shipments and, and vehicles was another big one. Um, one of our very first customer was a, was a large trucking company. And how we actually got acquired by Amazon um, was the trucking company says, look, we got all these trucks that we want to, we want to route optimization, you know, when's, you know, the biggest question in any trucking company is when, when's my stuff going to get here, right? And, and being able to optimize, you know, the fuel efficiency of those trucks and, and distribution. So that was a real big use case. And we had a, a large trucking company that just wanted us to prove the fact that we could do millions and millions of simultaneous connections. And so when we had to prove that, um, we had to spin up a bunch of EC2s and stuff on Amazon to actually simulate our platform and to simulate millions and millions of trucks. Um, and that's what actually caught the attention of Amazon. They're like, <clears throat> I call them like, what are you guys doing? And why are you doing that? And please stop. <laughs> um, so that was a big one, track and trace. Uh, and then um, agriculture was a huge use case too. Uh, ironically enough, you know, I, yes, I'm, I'm actually in agriculture, um, but um, the large farms, the large manufacturers, John Deere was an early adapter of IOT devices on their equipment, you know, being able to um, even not only just onboard stuff, but telemetry around there. Probably the biggest one is irrigation, right? Being able to do um, these huge pivots, you know, being able to monitor water usage, um, the amount of water that's not only coming out of the pivots, but, you know, how much is on the ground so that you're not overwatering or underwatering, getting really efficient with um, um, that fertigation, the ability to put not just, you know, water inside your irrigation system, but nutrients. And so that those soil sensors bringing back those type, you know, what that plant actually needs. Um we did, uh, I did a year of raising industrial hemp on the ranch and we actually, uh, prototyped, um, uh, Boston dynamics, their dog spot. I don't know if you saw him, but it's a, it's a robotic dog. We actually did a prototype around using that to go up and down the rows, checking for the health of a plant and then being able to, um, you know, remove that plant from, from the row if it's a male plant, cause you only want the female ones. So um, I think those are the big use cases. Um, agriculture was, like I say, was big and track and trace around shipments was, was really the early ones that, that we did. Got it. Um, well, and I think uh, that certainly cemented, uh, you know, in, in people's mind, but also I guess these fairly big industries that, that started to realize that they could do new, new things. I mean, you, did you call it nutri? Uh, so instead of irrigation, nutrigation, is that what you called it? Uh, fer- they call it fertigation, be, yeah. to be able to fertilize and irrigate at the same time. Right. So is it just fertilizer or is it actually other things? Uh, in any kind of nutrient that can go in. So like the, you know, the, when we did, um, when we did hemp, uh, everything is drip line. So, um, we would put any nutrient we needed in through the, through the irrigation and it would, you know, drip right into the plant. So whether it was, you know, we did some homemade remedies that we did, we'd put through there. Uh, otherwise we're just actually commercial fertilizers and nutrients that we would get for the plants. 
Are, are we there now with IoT that it is actually, well, that maybe the initial problem is still the problem, meaning the only thing that limits the growth of the technology is the imaginative use cases? Or, or would you say there are, it's now kind of more in the stage where the use case is very established, but it's just a lot of work to kind of like hardwire IoT everywhere to actually mm-hmm. get the benefits. Where are we in the development and the time cycle of this particular technology? Yeah, that's that's a, a really good question. You know, I think um, that imagination part is really, I think we we've, we've kind of passed that in my mind. Like I remember the first time I started thinking about IoT. You, once you realize, wait a minute, a device can talk, and I can, you know, it can send me temperature, and then I can take that device and have it talk to another device, and I can automate. You know, the imagination starts to go wild. Oh, we could do this, and we could do this. Uh, we were always, you know, back in the early days, we were always in what I call the basement of the enterprise. So we were down with the electrical engineers, you know, soldering wires on boards, you know, trying to connect this thing, you know, have a Raspberry Pi and connecting something up and getting data flowing flowing up to the, cl- the cloud. And it's really hard to gain traction in, in, in that um, the next step from that was really moving into the C-suite to where the CTOs and the CEOs and CEOs are starting to look at this and go, oh, we now have business opportunities and we can make businesses around this technology. It's just not a bunch of guys in the basement anymore connecting up stuff and sending it. There's actually legitimate businesses that can be made out of this. Um, you know, and I always akin that to, you know, you look back in the late <clears throat> mid-90s, First time I put up an e-commerce site was 93 or 94. Uh, Amazon, of course, is, you know, the preeminent retailer of our time. And Amazon couldn't exist without the advent of, of the Internet, you know, and of that, of that socialization of people being able to buy things online. I remember when the very first website I put up, my first customer said, I'm not going to do this because no one will ever put their credit card online. They will just never do that. Of course generations go by and that doesn't even that's not even a, uh, an afterthought anymore um, and I now I think in terms of IOT we're kind of in that same cycle we had the imagination and we try to do it <clears throat> all the engineers go hey we want to do we want to do and all the business people go but how do we make money out of this and how can we you know the only the only thing the c-suite understands is how to save money or how to make money um, and so you got to show what these businesses look like. And now I think you're seeing entire business models um, being created out of IoT, you know, and it's just starting. So in my mind, we, I think, and and I also think that COVID had a lot to do with this um, realization that these IoTs and these systems could actually help and benefit us. Um, But I think what's happening now is the C-suites are going, okay, I see a way to save money or make money out of this, um, but we're still we're still kind of at the will anybody put their credit card on the internet type of mode. There's still that barrier that we haven't actually broke through where it's ubiquitous and everybody's going, yeah, this is what we're going to do. It's cheap. It's still a little bit hard, you know, to get these business models launched. Well, well. So there are some other more futuristic uh, applications I want to get to in a second, but let's address this other issue that I certainly cover a lot on this podcast, which has to do with making te- technology more accessible, not just for the end user, which is very important, but also for the people involved in, uh, you know, somewhere in in the process of so the workers, essentially. And and I know you have some thoughts on kind of 
low code and no code, yeah. uh, which is one one way uh, to make them more accessible. But as we, you and I were in the introduction, we were sort of talking about the dearth of of really good plug and play things for for something as simple, really now post COVID, as or something as fundamental as as just you know being able to pull up some audio and some visuals for for the next person you know in your meeting who you're going to meet online. But uh, but you know leaving that aside, what about some of those other uh, things where where really IoT you know it is a component. So I think you know. So what? So the question is right more around where do you think it's what? What are these business models looks like? Uh, no, yeah, the no code business models, okay. the no code strategies that that people uh, and, and I know you in some of your technologies uh, try to be very conscious that you know trying to reinvent the wheel the way you were you know ten fifteen years ago. IoT was still so experimental that the interfaces did require massive amount of engineering. To yeah. tweak it, right? So you said, "Oh, yeah, we're selling this technology," but you're really selling a technology that needs to then be drastically, you know, hand implemented. Yeah, and I think, and that was really kind of our vision. And and to give you kind of a, a parallel, where kind of what we followed, like if you remember um, the Salesforce model, you know, Salesforce.com is a CRM, right? Uh, I built a CRM back in the 90s, right? Uh, we didn't call it a CRM. We called it a customer database, right? <laughs> but I built, I had a database and I had a Java application and I, you know, I built a table and it was called accounts and I had contacts in there and I put first name and last name. And I'm sure Benioff and, and Parker Harris were sitting around having a beer one day and say, you know what, why don't we just give everybody that? You know, why don't we give them, everybody's building a database instead of them having to figure out what a DBA is and what an application server is and what a web application server is. Why don't we just give them that, give them a login and let them kind of, you know, make it easier for them. And that was really kind of the birth of, of cloud computing and that whole clicks, not code, which Salesforce um, obviously championed, championed in the early days. I'd done a lot of Salesforce consulting uh, in my career. And so I, that DNA was kind of in me when we were started doing IoT. So we wanted to build the same thing. You know, when you are saying, all right, we got a, we've got a business and we want to uh, connect jacuzzi pool pumps and, you know, do subscription services to our customers and send them the chemicals instead of and automatically do preventative maintenance on the pools and all those kinds of things. If you come up with that idea and you go, okay, I want to do this. The next thing you go is, okay, how much is that going to cost me? I got it. All right, I got to have servers and I got to figure out how to get the data there. And then the data has got to go to my customers and then I got to have context. And then I, you know, it's, then it becomes overwhelming and you go, ah, forget it. There's, I don't have that much money. <laughs> um, and what Thing Logics did was actually when we when we sold the, um, the the message broker to Amazon, you know, as a delivery person and as a consultant for years, all I, all I want to know is where do I put my code? Where do I put the logic for my things? And that's really what Thing Logic was born out of—the ability to say, "All right, let's give you let's give you all that. I'll give you the database. I'll give you the logins. I'll give you the security. I give you." You know, the workflows for an IoT thing, just as Salesforce kind of gave you this 80% of a CRM, we give you 80% of the of the IoT solution. So you can plug it in and start going for you know virtually little to no money. And then you start building your unique case. You start building your application. And I think it, you know, that barrier to entry of having to go spin up all this stuff 
you know, being able to do this low code, no code, you know, repeatable stuff that everybody needs these foundational building blocks really enables customers to say, okay, well, we don't have to worry about the technology anymore. Let's just focus on our business proposition. Yeah. And it's interesting though, because code is of course one issue, but if you look at Salesforce, which you know really well, the integration effort isn't just about tweaking the code. I mean, that is, that at least historically was, you know, it was a big consulting business because it was still complicated. You may not need to be a software developer per se for all of those steps, but there still is a lot of kind of integration work and, and even just tweaking them if they are kind of pluggable Lego pieces, they were intricate Lego pieces, I yeah. guess, right? And, and it all had to kind of fit into a business's infrastructure. Some of that stuff has gotten easier with other applications. Um, can you talk a little bit about the path to like zero knowledge when it comes to integration and and where are we with some of these applications and where will we get i mean is it is it the case that even with iot applications that there's still going to be some amount of tech evolution so that the interfaces won't be a hundred percent intuitive uh or or are we moving do you think toward more towards the day and age where literally uh, you know, if you can do a PowerPoint presentation, you can you can integrate an app. Yeah, I think we are. You know, and one of the things that I think it was is the cornerstone of that um, really is um, this, and it's been around for years and years. We don't really talk about it um, because it's this underlying technology, but a NoSQL database, you know, which is basically a schemaless database, which we use in IoT because you can't predict the data that any given device is going to send you. A temperature sensor is going to send you one thing. Uh, An automobile sensor is going to send you another thing. And a jacuzzi pool pump is going to send you something completely different. So in the old days, when I called the request and response days where we had, you know, I click a link and that sends a request to a server and it sends me back a web page and it, you know, shows me that page in the browser. And then I click something else and it does a query to a database and I get it. It's a very synchronous process. I request something, you know, I get a response for that. That requires that our schemas match, right? You know, my database, you know, if I want to integrate my database with your database and you called it first name and I called it F name and you called it last name and I called it L name and then we got mappings and we got to do all that, you know, we got to synchronize our stuff and then, you know, security, we're not going to get away from that. So that's always going to be, I think there's going to be that um, that veil there for us to overcome. But as we move away from this idea of um, request response, you know, database driven stuff, more into event driven architectures, meaning I'm, I'm a temperature sensor. I just send the na- the temperature all the time. I send 76, 76, 77, 78, 79, 76. And that's all I do. And as long as that, as long as that keeps coming, now I don't really have to integrate so much as I have to orchestrate. Now I have to orchestrate that one and say, okay, well, that temperature sensor is over there. It belongs into this context. But we've actually now gone to the point of, in our integration process of treating everything like a device. So in other words, we now cre- create databases as if they're a temperature sensor. There's a little piece of software that sits on the database and the database updates or sends, uh, gets a new record. It 
chirps and sends a message just like it was a device. So a row in the database becomes a device that it sends data. So now the integration, because it's all over, you know, the new protocol, really what we do in IoT is called MQTT, um, as opposed to the old HTTP. And that's event-driven. Things just send. So as more of these systems, and we've actually even took this concept to um, the United Way as one of our customers, and they came to us originally as a nonprofit, wanting us to help them develop a system to orchestrate care uh, in the San Jose area across, um, you know, homeless people against different agencies. So we now enabled an agency created, you know, each agency, whether you were a food bank or job training or um, counseling or whatever you were, we treated you as a device. Now you chirped data. You just sent data as if you were in, and now we we gather that and orchestrate it. All the same type interfaces doesn't really matter whether you you know what you call your database. We normalize it as it comes in, and we orchestrate that data as it comes into the into the platform. So I hmm. think you're right. I mean, and no one has really ever talked about. And to me, that's one of the most exciting things is this idea of event driven architectures where things happen in the world. And now we have to take action on those. So is the interoperability improving or is it just that the strategy changes? Well, I mean, the protocol did change. So, yeah. so it was made by standard default easier. But, but was that kind of by decree or was it industry just self-policing uh, its, uh, its protocols and just deciding that it's just way too much trouble if we all uh, you know, have all these different conventions? Well, I think, you know, you know, in the early days we were still trying to, you know, figure out who was going to win, you know, was it MQTT or, you know, there was, uh, co-op was another one. Um, there was a lot of these proprietary stuff, you know, just, old, you know, web sockets, um, just, you know, being able to connect TCP and just send data across. Um, so MQTT kind of has emerged as the standard. And I think you're right. I think that in and of itself, it kind of gives that standard. It's like, you know, no one even questions whether or not you should use HTTP when you build a web app. I mean, you don't have to. I could build a, I could build a a, a site that doesn't use HTTP, but nobody would, nobody would come to it, right? So, uh, it done. It definitely emerged as a standard, um, and especially around, you know, as the connectivity started to grow, you know, carriers. Um, the cellular, the cellular carriers liked it because it was a low message, you know, a small message packet size. You could send lots of them over a small, uh, small bandwidth. Um, the Lauren stuff, the Lor the low range radio stuff, you know, worked really well with that. So I think it kind of emerged as the standard, um, just because everybody, you know, it started to work and what was working at the time was what, what got the attention. Talk to me, Rob, a little bit about the emerging industrial use cases. I mean, one of one of the more futuristic ones that comes to mind, which uh, perhaps mistakenly very early on in kind of the overhyped part of, of IoT when everyone was starting to talk about it and no one could deliver it yet, was smart cities. Yeah. Right. So I remember the discourse around smart cities, even you know in the EU, for example, where I was working for a while in the even in sort of like 2004, 5, 6, you know, the early days of true IoT, 
And then people were talking about smart cities, and there were no such thing, right? Mm -hmm. the, you know, the, the transportation revolution, that micro mobility stuff that we've been seeing over the last even just two, three years, was nowhere near ready. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where where is smart cities right now? I um, we have um, a couple customers that use our technology for that, and. Um, uh, not going into what specific cities, but I, what we are seeing is um, places like um, companies like cable companies uh, and carriers that have kind of the connectivity. They own that connectivity in these cities where they can now deliver some of these products. The problem, again, even with those was, all right, how do you, I mean, and we had this problem at the beginning of the internet, right? All right. The internet's really cool, but I, you know, I still got a little phone line coming to my house. How do I get broadband? And it took a while for that to become, you know, ubiquitous so that, you know, every, everybody now has no one, I mean, no one plugs in their phone line and has to get off the phone when they get on the internet, but that took some time to get there. And I think smart cities are kind of at that same place. You're seeing these companies get into, um, get into providing these services, but the cities and the municipalities that, that we've had, we've dealt with, um, still are trying to figure out, okay, how do we do this? And what happens is IOT becomes, you know, kind of almost, carrier or, you know, vendor specific, which we try to avoid, but all right, I have a temperature manufacturer that has their cloud and my street lights, I buy them from somebody else. Oh, and they got a cloud that that goes up to. And now my, you know, my parking meters, I got that different vendor from there and they want their stuff talking to their cloud. So you have all these IOT vendors who are providing hardware and stuff, sending it up to their individual clouds. And now what you need is a cloud of clouds, which, you know, our foundry actually kind of became, we became a cloud of clouds where I don't care if it's an actual device sending me data or if it's your cloud that is sending is, you know, relaying that data to me from the device, but being able to orchestrate that and goes back to your integration question. As long as we all have the same protocols, we can do that. So the promise of smart cities, uh, I believe they are on the way. Uh, obviously, I've seen you've seen some of them. Um, you know, I think parking um, has been kind of the low hanging fruit that a lot of cities have started to implement. I still don't think we've gotten it great. I was talking to a guy the other day. He says, "Why can't I just say I need a parking spot?" <laughs> and <laughs> which now, is what you need, right? Yeah, All I, the I, other I stuff a, is kind of. <laughs> I, I want a parking spot. Where is it? I need one now. And where do I have one? Where I'm going? And being able to coordinate that and. You know, I think that's coming, but again, it's a logistical problem and a more of a political problem, I think, than it is a technology one. Because true technology, we can solve that um, any problem, any you know, very quickly. But the question is, who pays for it? Who owns it? You know, where does that reside? Who owns the data? Where's my security? All that kind of stuff that that goes around it. So I think, I think smart cities and other are on the cusp. They just got. We just got to get past that last political mile it's interesting because you know to some people 5g was like this enormous thing or, yeah. uh, you know in, in, and in telco circles they were like oh yeah once we've got 5g somewhere that's when everything's going to yeah. explode but there's, there's nothing really inherent in 5g that says now you will have yeah. you know honey and uh and milk for the rest yeah. of your life yeah. like yeah. it just doesn't work that way right yeah, yeah. 
No, not at all. And I, you're right. You know, everybody said, well, that's kind of the promise, but I mean, we were, we don't, I mean, MQTT doesn't need 5G to send messages. We, we were putting, we were putting cell chips on, on devices, you know, 10 years ago and they were just fine. Um, so then of course, more devices, more bandwidth, you, I mean, eventually you have to keep that, you got to keep that train moving. But, um, I mean, it's, it's kind of like broadband. It's, it's, I don't think it's enough, but it's, it's, how would I say it's not, it's, it's necessary, but not sufficient. You know, sure. you know, we have to, yeah, you, you have to have it and in order for IOT to actually become, but it's that in and of itself, isn't the, it's not the promised land for it. It's really comes down to the application, the application and data, you know? Well, as a, as a, technology architect, how do you feel about the fact that so many decisions are actually outside of your control? Because yeah. it's it's very easy to geek out and create a technical product that works in your basement or lab, yeah. right? But in order for it to gain the kind of adoption uh, adoption that you were lucky enough to to get, you know, around some of the things that are now being used in Amazon, a lot of that is not the technology. Uh, mm. That is kind of a conundrum. Yeah, yeah, I've learned to be a very patient man over the years. <laughs> um, you, you're right. It, it is, um, you know, and communicating that to people to under to get them to understand what is possible sometimes is 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 very difficult as, as well. Um, and it's not always the best technology that wins, right? It's not always the best idea. It comes back to marketing, and you know, um, I always go, you know, the back in the day when we had video cassettes, right? There was VHS and there was Betamax. Betamax was a far superior quality. It had, you know, it was smaller, it was more compact. It could do all these things, but it just lost the marketing war, you know? Um, and I even remember, you remember back in the day when we did um, the browser wars, you know, Netscape was the very first browser that anybody ever used. Great browser. Microsoft was four or five years behind in getting a, a browser out, but when they came out, Internet Explorer dominated the market because they had the marketing behind it. You know, we can debate. Well, I won't have that religious discussion here, whether ones, but that's the frustrating part. It's not necessarily the best technology that wins. It becomes, you know, the best marketing. You know, I always, you know, as a rancher, you know, on the ranch, we always invent. You need things because you just got to make your life easier. You got to make it safer and, you know, um, we always say uh, necessity is the mother of invention, right? So I need something. So, you know, you, you go to any ranch, any farmer in the country, and you'll find all kinds of amazing little things that these guys have come up with because they needed it. They had the need. I think in technology, we kind of flip that on its head sometimes. And I think it's, you know, it's not necessity is the mother of invention, but invention is the mother of necessity, meaning we build something because we can, because we think it's cool. We hand it over to the marketing people and say, hey, go create the need. And they go out and create the need. And whoever has the most money and has the most clever uh, on the marketing side, a lot of times wins, rules the day. Whether that's a, you know, a good thing or a bad thing, I think that, that path um, tends to be the more successful one, the ones that you hear about. Having said that, Rob, what sort of industry developments or, you know, maybe if you want to talk more about startup developments, are you excited about? I mean, you're obviously an inventor uh, a, a bit yourself, but what are some of the other 
I, I, you know, other industry uh, developments out there or startups or something that you're seeing in this IoT industry that excites you and things that, that you think are a, is pointing towards truly innovative products if they if they get the chance to live as we have explained it's not necessarily the absolutely technically best products but it could be something that for other reasons or or both you know technology and chance of survival excites you well um you know one of the things that um so as a as a rancher, and I have you know, I sell beef to consumers, and I've always always trying to figure out a way to work with my consumers better. How can I, as a IoT guy, you know, help myself in the ranch? And you know, we've built connected corrals so that you know the gates open and close, so that you know it's safer for the handlers and whatnot. But really, the thing that is exciting me—it's going to sound uh, almost mundane, I think—but um, it's SMS and text-based messaging. We as an IoT company, we've been focused on this for the last 10 years of managing messages between, you know, a device and a enterprise, if you will. Well, what occurred to us about a year ago was, you know, all right, so everybody's sending SMS messages. So I started, um, you know, sending SMS messages to my customers instead of emails. And my response rate the response rate went through the ceiling. Um, my customers were happier. It's more instantaneous. Um, so I started to expand upon this. We then built a platform. We came up with another product called Chirply that manages SMS messages coming around. Um, not an app, right? So I think what's got me excited is, the, I mean, I think email needs to die. I think we should put a fork in email and never let somebody send another email as they can. And you see other companies doing this, you know, um, Salesforce just bought Slack for, you know, I don't know, what was it? $1 billion. I think they paid for Slack. Um, but the ability of messaging and event based, um, applications, the idea being, I don't want to download an app and have another app on my phone, I should be able to use natural language processing and get what I want. I should be able to say to my phone, um, I want some more ground beef, you know, which you can on Alexa and you can on these other voice types of things. And that ability to interact with the human at the, you know, in a natural language processing mode and being able to send messages back and forth and have those messages be, um, understood and logic and applications ensue after that. That I think is what is exciting. Being able to interact with the things in your world, being able to interact with other things. I think five years from now, you and I are going to, if we have this conversation again, we're going to talk about, oh, you remember how we used to open up a browser and we type www? Those interfaces are going away. You know, the interfaces and the UIs that we are going to have, and we were talking, you know, you were talking earlier about you know, the video and stuff and holograms are going to come around. You're going to interact with a hologram and you're not going to go and have to type www. You're going to want to talk to it. So the ability to um, have enterprises build applications that can react to natural language, I think is to me is the next big thing. Yeah, Rob, I mean, it is the next big thing. And a lot of people agree with you, but similar to IOT, I would say that chatbots have been overhyped no, not yeah. just for five years, but for 10 yeah. years and maybe 15 years. And they never get, I, no, let, let me say, it's not that they never get any better. They clearly get better, but they get incrementally better. 
when are they going to get dramatically better? Yeah. And I don't think it's chatbots. I completely agree with you. I mean, I don't think it's chatbots that we're talking about. We're talking about the ability to create an application, not just a, not a chatbot is a, what we call it is a data collector. Okay. I have to collect certain pieces of data from you. So I'm going to kick off a chatbot. It's going to give you five questions. It's going to fill in those slots. It's going to use NLP to fill those in. But I think it's more like, not just a chat button, but I want an application that says, uh, hey, uh, if I'm a sales guy, um, how many leads did I get in today? Um, it's not just a chat button. It's got to go in. It's got to go to it's your CRM, find the leads. Or, you know, what's my opportunity count? Or, you know, how much beef do I have in the freezer? Or um, being able to interact kind of the way, you know, that you know, in those fantasy worlds of Star Trek and Star Wars, they interacted with the ship, you know? And I think I agree with you. I don't, I mean, to me, chatbots are dead too. That's not what we're talking about. It's a different way of building applications. Yeah. No, I, I just find it pretty interesting because no one would disagree that that would be a fantastic thing. But to then go from there to one, either risk, you know, uh, your money either building or investing in this, but then more importantly, try to predict regardless of how much money and how many startups and industries are, are, are kind of exploring this, when it will reach that acceptance level where mm. most people say, yes, this is now acceptable and I would use it and I would actually, you know, without, without having all these skills and patience, I guess, for mistakes and all that stuff, let's just say it's like 90% success rate or whatever it is, it's good enough. And, and I think if you were able to make those calls and figure out like w what amount of time and energy and money would it take to get to that? I mean, that, that is the holy grail, I guess, for, for these kinds of emerging technologies. Really hard to predict. Very hard, yeah. And I think to some degree, it's the same thing like we saw in the dot-com boom, right? Some generations, they're never going to put their credit card. Maybe there's, there are still people today, I'm sure, who won't put their credit card online, right? <laughs> but... There's also a generation who doesn't know any different, right? Um, and, you know, you look back at, you know, how, you know, you look back at some of the innovators of our time, Steve Jobs, his, his brilliant idea was, let's put my computers in kindergarten classes, you know, and then I'll wait. <laughs> I'll be patient. I'll wait the 15 years for those guys to grow up and now become into the things. But when you grow up with that kind of technology and it becomes familiar to you, than it was, but it does take patience and it's, it will emerge over time. There are those early adopters that are sit on the edge, but I don't think you can say, I don't think there's a way for you to say how much time and money there is. How can I actually get that? It, it's got to exist. And if it doesn't exist today, then it will never emerge tomorrow. And it's got to be, you know, something that can be, you know, um, inexpensive, you know, and that's one of the things that we try to do with our platform is make it inexpensive to build applications that you can do this with. So we, we've talked, you know, straddling kind of commerce, which is sort of your background, and then on to sort of consumers and, and interfaces of, of various kinds. And But I wanted to sort of bring it back with my last question just to factories and, and, and industrial work, workers and industrial use cases for, for these sorts of technologies. What is sort of next for the factory for you? If you look at what, what sorts of uh, uses that IoT 
is now having. So clearly, you know, machine monitoring in a m- most basic sense, yeah, uh, and clearly event-based, uh, you know, ways of looking at the world is very, very relevant to to a factory situation. But where do you see this uh, becoming used, and and what's going to then happen to our concept of what a what a factory is and industrial production? Because you know, you said earlier you worked on supply chains, right? So that takes us yeah. sort of out of the factory and automates parts that then obviously changes the factory process. Where are we now, and what what, what will happen? Now, I, I've seen you know concepts for digital factories, but what does that mm-hmm. really mean? Uh, they are clearly IoT enabled. What what do you see? Yeah, so I think so. Two two things on that. On the factory side, and actually manufacturing and building goods, you know, on a on a line, uh, a lot of that actually is has has been there long before we've been talking about it, right? These robotic arms and uh, automating a factory. I mean, that's there's nothing new there. Uh, I think what's getting better, and what I think is the game changer in that particular um, sector, is the uh, AI. You know, the AI IoT, um, artificial intelligence against that, being able, these algorithms that we are now using for, are, are getting very specific for industries. I mean, so an AI, the AI that you're, we're going to use to recommend a product to you is a different than the AI that we were going to use to, you know, predict maintenance or failure of a piece of equipment. Um, preventive maintenance and predictive maintenance on machines, I think, is a you know, is going to be a huge part of that factory. And these are getting, these algorithms are getting so specific now that they are getting um, to the point where they're actually having uh, actual, they make financial sense now where you can now schedule and get more efficiency, get more efficiencies around your production because you're not broke down or you can schedule those maintenances or you can, you know, you can, you can measure your, you can, um, can hit your maintenance schedule against demand for supplies that coming in, uh, you know, for demand for your consumers. So you do, and we all know anybody's in those factories, they know intuitively, you know, what their, um, when their busy times are, what, and their, their slow times. Um, the, one of the very first IOT projects I ever did was a vibration analysis in a, a paper mill, uh, we installed these uh, vibration analysis uh, around these big machines. What we replaced was a guy who had a screwdriver. He put the screwdriver up there and he put it up against his ear. That guy, um, we did. We actually we did a, as good as him, but we never got better than him because that was his. That was he knew that machine. He lived that machine. But you can't replicate that guy. Right, and so you have the ability to replicate that and do and, and do this. So I think in in manufacturing that becomes um, um, kind of paramount with that. The other part that I think is really in in I I can I guess I lumped them together because they're both big buildings, but warehouse and distribution. To me, IoT one of the one of the huge impacts it's going to have on is um, distribution. You know, efficiency of just-in-time inventory, moving things in and out, and maybe not even inventorying at all. The ability to um, be able to, the ability to be able to, you know, have 
uh, inventory move between warehouses or move between suppliers of that, um, I think is also a big deal. So I think those are the two big use cases. Yeah. Uh, well, well, let me then tag on just a tiny little uh, question on there. And I don't know if you are free to comment on that, but you know, the, in, in his famous note to his employees, right, Jeff Bezos to, uh, said, you know, there could be a time soon, who knows when, when, you know, we'll be out of business. Well, and, and people are laughing that off. But w- one of the things that makes this somewhat relevant is what you just said, right? If everybody can do, now Amazon does a thousand different things really well, right? So yeah. it's, it's, I'm not saying that Amazon's going to go away. But this part that you just said, you know, an, an IoT-based uh, strategy for warehouses. I mean, isn't that becoming commoditized quite rapidly? So arguably that was at least Amazon's, one of their first insights. That part of their business, presumably others will figure that out. I mean, if you're a Walmart and you haven't figured that out, I mean, why are you in the business, right? And, and yeah. But even many, many smaller ones could couple together and, and use this kind of advanced warehouse management. So from that point of view, isn't this particular application within IoT uh, commoditized or at least possible to envision be- becoming commoditized, even at scale? Oh, yeah. I, and it, I guess you could probably make the argument that it is already. You know, yeah. uh, it, it, to your point, if, if you aren't doing it, you're not going to survive um, very long, but I think the next step of that really is really maybe the you, 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 the the shrinking of the warehouse, right? I mean, the reason that we I mean we have we we all the we have all these buyers we have all these trucks moving in now, but but as you know, that ability to move goods and services around, we can't find enough truckers to get the goods and services that we need now moved around, um, and so having the ability to kind of shrink the warehouse instead of having central distribution, being able to get that efficiency at a distributed distribution, you know, in smaller, you know, type of places. Um, I think they call that retail, right? (laughs) right. (laughs) And, you know, I used to, I worked for, um, uh, Harbor Freight Tools. We were we were a tool manufacturer for years, and I mean they're still around. We when I started with them, we were strictly a mail order company. All we did was you know we sent out catalogs. You called in, and we sent you out your tool, your hammer, your screwdrivers. And then we realized, oh good, well wait a minute. If we put small warehouses, retail stores in all the areas that people were buying our costs go down because now we're moving between two points instead of between the end customer. Um, And I think you, you know, Costco saw that and they kind of said, okay, well let's put big, (laughs) let's put big retail stores, big warehouses where all the customers are. But I, I think there is a business model in terms of the um, using the IOT technology and that efficiency that you can get from IOT and that management where you might see, <coughs> excuse me, the small mom and pop start to come back, you know, where because they actually become kind of distributors of whatever particular product. Well, my, my last observation on that would be that if you added a real environmental cost onto industry, yeah. you know, onto consumer goods, uh, th- then you could really start deciding. I mean, yeah. from humanity's perspective, that's what we should do, right? Yeah. It doesn't, yeah. shouldn't really matter to us. We're going to send our kids into this uh, collapsing sort of an ecosystem. What sort of industrial structure looks like, whether it's small or large or mom and pop or or conglomerates. The point is the environmental cost of me 
ordering one little item and having, you know, some driver, you know, co- come exactly. there. If I can just walk to the next store and get the same item, you know, 10 minutes later. Uh, I mean, these, these are interesting questions, but they, you would have to sort of plan for it. And, uh, well, certainly yeah. IoT can enable both and either and, uh, you know, efficiency for sure. And I actually, you know, when, when Amazon bought um, Whole Foods, you know, and uh, they had had the, the ghost store up in, in Seattle. I don't know if you ever had a chance to go to the ghost store, but it's a, you know, you, you know, basically it's a cashless store. You walk in, you pick something up, you walk out. Um, sensors, you know, manage that whole process and charge your card and do whatnot. And I kind of figured that's where they were headed with this Whole Foods acquisition, where they were going to, you know, kind of start making Whole Foods, maybe the ghost store, but also basically small little distribution centers for the other stuff, because you're absolutely right. You know, you are, you know, if I, if, you know, if I order a, an adapter for my, my monitor, that guy's going to come out to my house and he's going to drop it off. Right. Should he? Well, I think he should, because I want the thing, but you know, if, you know, if it was at a place where you could get this, it does, you know, it makes it cheaper. It makes it more efficient. And you're right. It does help us, you know, as, as we try to live on this planet and go about our where our day, it it you know we need to cut down on those types of things. Yeah. Well, it's just another example, I guess, that technology brings about so many changes that have cascading consequences, and that I mean, you as a cattle farmer surely uh, must be fully aware of that. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's just like indeed. you make one little change, and yeah, then yeah. you know something yeah. happens, and it has like disaster written all over it. So indeed. It's just uh, funny. Well, look, Rob, it's been a fascinating conversation. I, I like how, you know, something that seems as simple as, as you know, an IoT concept, it, it has so many use cases and examples baked into it. It's really fascinating to, to learn how you've been at the forefront of these uh, use cases, I guess, and technologies for so many, uh, so many seasons of, of change. So yeah. I thank you very much. And thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. You have just listened to episode 44 of the Augmented Podcast with host Ronarne Unheim. The topic was no code for IoT in the cloud. Our guest was Rob Rastovich, CTO of ThingLogix. In this conversation, we talked about what the Internet of Things means for industrial business models. My takeaway is that the Internet of Things is about to complete its hype cycle. We might finally see the smart cities we were promised in the 90s. With IoT, digital benefits come to infrastructure. The last mile of sunk assets, long timelines, and nearly forgotten but hard-earned public goods. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode 29, The Automated Micro Factory episode 33, Sustainable Manufacturing at Scale, or episode 23, Digital Manufacturing in the Cloud. Here's Brian Matthews, CTO of Bright Machines, talking to me about the automated microfactory in episode 29. The automated uh, microfactory today is a set of modular Lego-like building blocks uh, where you have standardized, already proven, already inventoried um, devices that can do various process steps, but they're all under software control. So you design your line in software, you program your line in software, you simulate it, and you deploy it all through software. And then you can manage it. You can have IoT, get data back from that. 
um, and improve your next uh, revision of that. That's that's kind of what you can do today. I think you know tomorrow is where you get into the cloud and you start bringing machine learning and you get answers and insights from that and you bring that data all the way back to the design phase so you make a better design in the first place. And then I think the other part of this is instead of just having IoT report on how your machines are working, in the future, we're gonna make that bi-directional. The, the machine learning system is going to tweak the parameters of the temperatures and the torques and the pressures of the line dynamically in real time. Closed loop continuous improvement. Hopefully, you'll find something awesome in these or other episodes. If so, do let us know by messaging us, and we would love to share your thoughts with other listeners. The Augmented Podcast is created in association with Tulip, connected frontline operations platform that connects the people, machines, devices, and the systems used in a production or logistics process in a physical location. Tulip is democratizing technology and empowering those closest to operations to solve problems. Tulip is also hiring. You can find Tulip at tulip.co. Please share this show with colleagues who care about where industry and especially industrial tech is heading. To find us on social media is easy. We are Augmented Pod on LinkedIn and Twitter and Augmented Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. See you next time. Augmented, industrial conversations that matter.